Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 
Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. And I said, okay, I'll do it on one, one condition that you do it first class and I don't get embarrassed. And my wife and I were in the Goodyear suite, and I said to her, boy, this is easy. We're, we're going to win this race. There's a hell of a lot more chicken and beer to be sold than there is champagne and caviar. Not having a contract with a driver and having moral turpitude clauses and things like that, I mean, they had never heard of anything like that. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, this week, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention the tragedy that took place with George Floyd. And Steve, I don't have any answers, but I will say this. From the very bottom of my heart, I don't believe this is a black and white issue. It's a human issue. I don't care what the color of your skin is, but it's the content of your character that matters. Well, I think you're exactly right, Rick. And the only thing else I might add to all of this is that if what has happened across this country leads us to calm down and communicate about racism and do something about it, something more constructive, obviously, than looting a Target store, well, then that is a plus. And to be very honest with you, that is exactly what has to happen. We need to solve this problem. Steve, you know me to be a man of faith, and there is a passage in John chapter 13, it's verses 34 and 35, and it says, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. For me, that's the bottom line. doesn't matter if you're a Christian, doesn't matter if you're atheist, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, whatever. It says to love one another. Well put, Rick. Well put. Steve, moving on from that a little bit. This week, I posted another poll over on our YouTube channel. I want to see what you think about this one. All right. All right. Who appeared on the most Grand National slash Winston Cup slash NASCAR scene covers? Well, I'm going to take a stab at it. What's your best guess? I'd say uh, Dale Earnhardt. Here's what I came up with. If a driver was visible on a scene cover, that driver might not be the focal point of that cover. They may just be in a pack of cars. They got logged when I scanned all the covers, okay? Sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> we won't get into that. Dell Earnhardt Sr. was shown on the cover of scene 208 times. That's pretty good. 208. All right. Jeff Gordon was shown on the cover of scene 207 times. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a neck and neck race right there. They had a few of those on the track too. (laughs) I believe the margin of victory in that race was maybe a couple of inches. (laughs) Daryl Waltrip was on the cover 164 times. And Dale Jr. was on the cover 108 times, and Richard Petty was on the cover 101 times. How about that? That (laughs) is a very, very close race. (laughs) (laughs) 
Steve, in our first segment this week, I have been looking forward to sharing this interview for quite some time now, certainly since we did the interview. But a couple of months ago, I got a message on Facebook from Charlie Crawl, and I had never met Charlie face-to-face, but we've been in touch on social media, kind of got to know him that way. But he asked me if I would give him a call, and I called him back immediately, and he asked if I would be interested in interviewing Bill Gardner. Now, Bill Gardner is his uncle, okay? So that's how they're related. But Charlie asked me if I would be interested in interviewing Bill Gardner, and I was like, "Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Bill was the owner of Die Guard Racing, and I think it would be fair to say that Die Guard (laughs) in its heyday was involved in its fair share of controversies. And that's something that I talked to Charlie about. If we did this interview, was Bill going to be willing to talk about some of those controversies, some of those issues? And Charlie came back to me and said, yeah, Bill would be willing to talk about basically anything that we asked. So he answered every single question that we threw at him. He didn't dodge anything. And I want to mention, Rick, that I'm thinking, Rick, that our interview with Bill is probably the first of any kind in decades with Bill Gardner. Yeah. Uh, It's quite a coup, and we certainly want to thank Charlie for that. But Bill Gardner was a very, very important individual during the payday of Dygard in more ways than one. And when Dygard faded away, well, Bill Gardner sort of faded away. And I dare say most of today's race fans have not heard a word about him or who he is. And this is going to be very revealing. Steve, in this week's installment of the interview that we did with Bill, he talks about how Dygard got started. He talks about the parting of the ways with Donnie Allison, Daryl Waltrip coming on board, the on-again and off-again relationship with Buddy Parrott, and a little bit about Daryl's eventual desire to move on. And we will go more in-depth about Daryl's move to Junior Johnson next week. But Bill did mention it a couple of times in this portion of the interview. So the long and short of it is this. I came away very pleased with how that interview turned out. Yeah, uh, I did too. I thought it was very thorough and informative. Quite frankly, it shed some new light on the many controversies that Dygard endured over the years. Bill's perspective over those controversies are a bit different than what we've been told by others. In journalism, there's two sides to every story. True. And for the last 30-some-odd years, we've heard one side of the story. We got Bill's side, and whoever was correct, I don't know, but at least we did do our due diligence and get both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Steve, in our second segment, we are going to go back to the May 26th, 1977 issue of Grand National Scene. Steve, that was Grand National Scene's second issue ever. That's a blast from the way past. (laughs) They were still cracking them off the mimeograph machine. (laughs) Exactly. I think they had two or three staff guys at the particular time. And I know that Gene Granger was their heavy-duty raging reporter. This issue was all of 12 pages long, and it featured coverage of three races because back then they were coming out basically whenever they could, but it was supposed to be bi-weekly at that point. But the races covered in this issue were the May 1st race at Talladega won by Darrell Waltrip after some last lap trickery. Today, it's standard operating procedure. Sure, what it did. yeah. 
the May 7th Music City 420 at Nashville, which was won by Benny Parsons after just a little bit of controversy or a whole lot of controversy, take your pick, and Kel Yarbrough's victory in the May 15th Mason-Dixon 500 at Dover. Steve, there was also an epic Grits and Chitlins column (laughs) by Rob (laughs) Griggs that mentioned the revolving door at Dygard. And there was also a feature written by Bob Moore on Crew Chief Herd Nab in this issue. Steve, this week we also have new support from Johnny Lewis. So, Johnny, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are helping us get to where we want to go. Listeners, if you can possibly help us out on Patreon, if you could help us out on PayPal, please do that. Support QWare. They are our presenting sponsor and also Brian Kelb, who has been with us for close to a year now and Mm -hmm. lending his support. So I truly appreciate their support. So if you could possibly do some business with QWare and do some business with Brian Kelb, please do so. You can help us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash the same podcast. Or if you would rather just do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. All right, Bill, how did die guard racing get started? It all started from a pinochle game at, uh, (laughs) we, uh, Mike, the Prospero, the die of die guard. And uh, his wife and mine were playing Pinochle, and he had made a lot of money in Connecticut and condo business, and he started spending his money in racing in Connecticut. And I had no idea about any of this and had not been involved in racing at all. And in the middle of this thing, he said to me, uh, you know, I'm going to enter a car in a Daytona 500. Uh, How about being my partner? And I said, well, he said, you know about Daytona. I said, yeah, I think so. I mean, I knew little other than the racetrack, Indianapolis, and there was a Daytona. So he said to me, you know, partner up with me. And I said, okay, I'll do it on one one condition that you do it first class and I don't get embarrassed. And we were both young guys that had, you know, been fortunate to make some money. And and so we went, I told him, go ahead and do it. Well, he had had a car being built by Bobby Allison in Uytown, Alabama. And... And he told me that. And, and I, I was taking off to the islands with the family. And I said to him, you know, you got to get, you know, the rest of the people in line. Well, when I came back, I said to him, you know, I've read the NASCAR book. And I said, you know, I've learned a lot now about the sport that you're trying to get me into. And, you know, we need a, we need a crew, you know, <laughs> we need a crew chief. We need, we, you know, we need a lot of things. And I said, what have you done about it? He says, and, and how about a driver? And he said, I haven't gotten anybody. I said, you got to be kidding. You know? So anyway, I said to him, okay, then let's you and I fly down to Ueytown and meet up with Bobby, who's building this car, which I have no idea anything about. And so we did. And Bobby introduced us to his brother, Donnie. And, you know, we looked him up and felt that that would be a good, good driver for us at the time. So we hired him and and then he helped, him and his brother helped put a team together, mm-hmm. you know, the, the pit crew. And so that's, that's how that all started. Well, I had no idea that the, that the car that he was having built was a Chevelle. 
And Bobby understood that he wanted this car to race in short tracks in Connecticut, in New England. So anyway, we show up to the Daytona 500 and make a long story short, we qualify the qualifying car, 44th or whatever it is at that time. And so you show up, you're at the end of the field, and if somebody falls out, you, you, you're in. Well, nobody fell out. And, and so that was our first, my first experience of, of <laughs> entering a car in NASCAR. <laughs> now, I was pretty perturbed and, and had a pretty, pretty severe conversation with Bobby. And, and I thought that Bobby, you know, built us the wrong car. And come to find out, Bobby educates me and tells me that, no, you should have had a Monte Carlo <laughs> to go through the air. He says, well, you got this big Chevelle and you're lucky to hear a Ford, you know, alternate car. He said, and so I apologized to Bobby because he knew I was mad. <laughs> and, and so we went on. And I, I learned a lesson from that, that, you know, it's quite a complicated sport and that there was a lot more to it. And so we ended up, we ended up uh, that year, my, my brother-in-law ends up crashing his Ferrari head on into a truck at 110 and ends up in the hospital almost dying and, and paralyzed in half his body. Make that a long story short. Also, uh, you know, I was with his wife in the hospital and uh, helped, helped with that situation. Uh, but I ended up where I ended up, if the die guard was going to continue, it was going to be by me only. Right. So I owned a hundred percent of the team going forward into, into the 1984. And my brother-in-law was, was, uh, incapacitated, uh, pretty bad. And that's when, when we entered the Daytona 500 in 1974 and almost won it. We had about 10 or 12 laps to go and we're leading the race. And my wife and I were in the Goodyear suite and I said to her, boy, this is easy. We're, we're going to win this race. It's, you know, and Bobby and, and, and Richard Petty was a half a track behind us. So I thought, you know, with that many laps left, we were going to have a victory, our first victory. <laughs> well, the guy driving 55 car blows his engine on the straightaway and, and Donnie hits, the, hits it and spins out. And uh, make a long story short, he missed the entrance to pit road, had a hobble all the way around the track, and he ends up pulling into the pit. And we still could have come out in the same lap, and because there were only two cars, we would have been on his bumper. Well, I felt still pretty confident that that we were going to have a shot to winning. In the meantime, the ABC Wide World of Sports is up in the tower looking for me to take me down to the winner circle, which was kind of a you know, a bad situation. Uh, I wasn't too happy about that, but it happened. Well, the pit crew cuts the air hose going over the, going over the wall and Bobby and Donnie goes down a lap. Well, that was my introduction to the sport. And I was so mad, you know, and, and convinced that, you know, I could, I could do something and, and, and enjoy this thing if I got more involved. Yeah. And so I did. <laughs> it yeah. kind of got me hooked. And so from there, you know, uh, we moved the, the, the team that was working out of a garage in Ueytown, Alabama. I bought a facility in Daytona, a big facility, which at the time was state of the art. Built a home, uh, you know, engine, compute, you know, the engine room for, for Robert Yates and everything else. And, and had the place spick and span and ready to roll. And I thought that the center of racing. <laughs> yeah was Daytona. 
Well, after a few months, we couldn't get anybody to come to work. <laughs> and, and they called me down and for a meeting. And, and so they convinced me that we needed to move to, to Charlotte area. And right. So I said, fine. So we, we bought a facility up in Charlotte, moved the team, and then I just sold the building. And that's well, how we ended up in, in Charlotte and yeah. ended up with Gates and, and the rest. I mean, obviously having Robert was huge. And uh, in fact, we had a, a separate, separate operation. As you probably know, we, we had more than, more than, we had more than half the field with engines that were our engines uh, yeah. that nobody even knew about. But uh, that's a whole nother story. What was your what was your business background before you got into NASCAR? Oh, I was I was uh, in the steel business, stainless steel business. Yeah. Um, I didn't know in, that. In strip and stainless steel wire, I had facilities in various locations in the United States, and and then I was also heavily involved in real estate, big big time. And uh, because we could shelter our income from the from the steel businesses by you know the depreciation factors that the IRS allowed under those laws so we ended up I ended up building a uh, you know quite a few facilities uh, in an industrial park and, and you name it and so that expanded into that and and just it just became one thing after another so my career was was in all different directions right and that's where my money came from uh, and then subsequently, I opened up a bank in the first bank in Connecticut, uh, uh, which 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 I was underwritten by two underwriters, which had never been done. I was chairman of the board of that bank for five years. I wasn't a banker. I was the businessman sitting on the board, you know, those kind of things. And we had shopping malls in Clearwater, Florida, and we, we owned the Diamond and Jewelry Centers in, in Miami. Uh, several facilities and huge buildings down there, uh, a large real estate portfolio with, with my partners. I had different partners in different, different, in different segments of my career. Mm. Uh, and so then racing came along and, you know, I mean, I, I, I got, obviously I, I, I liked it and, and got, got more and more involved. And I was convinced that I, my team could break into the big three because everything at that time was won by Pearson, Petty and Yarborough. Yeah. And so there had to be, I had to break in to the big three. And that was my goal, which I did. And ultimately, as we progressed, uh, we ended up with, with, with just Junior and, and Dygard being key, key teams for several years during that period. Uh, and then, of course, I, I changed drivers uh, with, with Donnie. I, I had... Quite frankly, I'd found out that Donnie's a terrific guy and a hell of a racer, but he was really excellent in super speedways. But I had heard that he had problems with being in crashes and short tracks and and was concerned that I was never going to be able to win a championship if I couldn't win short term short tracks. So when we didn't do well at that Fourth of July race, uh, <clears throat> I terminated our relationship and and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And at the time, I had come down to Daytona in our yacht. And, and so I had my wife and I had quite a bit of time to think about it on our way back to Connecticut. But it was a strange thing that happened was that my brother, uh, I had bought a Donzi down, down in Florida. My brother was hauling it back up to Connecticut. And it stopped 
for gas and who pulls behind them with, with Daryl Walter. I mean, fortuitous, you couldn't believe. So they start talking and of course, we don't have a driver. And, and uh, so they talked on that time and then they got back on the highway. And wouldn't you know, my brother stops at a gas station again. I mean, and who pulls in behind them? And they, and they weren't on the highway together. So this was really strange. My brother, and he says, you won't believe who, who's behind you. Know, he says, it's Daryl. So they talked more. Well, that led to, to, to my brother telling me something's, something's leading us to this, this Daryl Walter deal. In the meantime, him and his father-in-law flew up to Connecticut. Uh, his father-in-law was a hell of a nice guy, chairman of a, a very large company. And we met. And he convinced me to uh, give his son-in-law the ride. And uh, that started that. And from that, his president, uh, his pre- he was chairman of this company. Uh, I think it's Texas Gas Transmission or something. In either event, he made the introduction. And I flew out with Daryl to meet with Bill Stokely at Stokely Van Camp, uh, who owned Gatorade at the time. and. What, what happened was is that um, they made the introduction and, and I sat there with, with, with uh, Bill Stokely, who was the same age as me, and chairman and obviously the largest stockholder and everything. And, and we cut a deal and I cut a very unique deal with him. And because he was a little leery, you know, the only kind of people that were in the sport were the three major automotive companies. And there wasn't anybody that was in the other industries. So I made a deal with him that he that that he couldn't lose. That he only paid me for first, seconds, and thirds, and he, only, he paid me wow. for laps led. And you know, my background was contracts, and so I drafted the contract and and said, "Look, you got nothing to lose. I'm paying the bills anyway, whether I have you on the car or not." And so we made a deal. We signed a contract, and and Bill and I became best friends. And his sales the first year. At, he wasn't supposed to tell me, but he told me it went up like 300% Gatorade product. And they, they couldn't believe the impact that NASCAR had. And, you know, my, my, my theory was, was even with Bill Sr. and Bill Jr., was the conversations that we had, they were shocked when I asked them for a copy of their insurance policies. They wanted to know no one else had ever asked for that. And I said, well, if my car is going to your stadium, I'm going to get sued along with you. And they said, well, we never thought of that. And that's the difference between a business guy with all kinds of background in, in, in litigation and everything else that uh, they were shocked at. And then they did. And we learned from that. Uh, I wrote the first written contract in auto racing, which was Darrell Walter's contract, to the best of my knowledge. Roger Penske had heard about it. And Roger asked me to meet with him. And I did, and, and we, we became very good friends. And he said, I said, no, look, at, I'll share with you my contract that I wrote for Daryl. And he was very interested in getting his hands on it. And I said, but, you know, you had lost Donahue over in the Europe, and I'd like to see, you know, the, the, the lawsuits and, the, and, and the, the litigation aspects and your, 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 your backups to how you're going to defend this thing. I said, because it could end up with me. So we started a mutual relationship, Roger and I, that we felt was both beneficial from looking at the business of racing as a business and, and, not, yeah. and not just a sport that people, right. I, I, people didn't get it. I mean, I was, 
I, I, I think I was way ahead of my time. That's the problem. <laughs> problem. <laughs> but uh, how did you see Diegard? Did you see it as a business investment or was it more of a hobby or a distraction from your other business ventures? It sounds like you were very business oriented, even when it came to Diegard. Well, absolutely. I employed my business skills because I saw the sport going huge. I, I was sitting in my jet with, with my wife and Bill Sr. and Jr. stuck their head in one day and, and said to me, what, what, what are you doing in, 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 in the sport? What, why are you in NASCAR? Why aren't you up at Indy with, you know, in, 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 instead of here? And I said, there's a hell of a lot more chicken and beer to be sold than there is champagne and caviar. <laughs> and I said, well, you, you, you guys own this thing. It's huge. But, you know, the potentiality of it is it, it's much larger than I even think you think it is. And I said, it, and, and that's the reason that sponsors will want to come into the sport provided you do it business-wise. I mean, not having a contract with a driver and having moral turpitude clauses and things like that I mean, they had never heard of anything like that. And, uh, and that's what I employed into the sport uh, business. Now, your brother Jim was team president. What was the working relationship between the two of you? As a team owner, I would assume that you had the final say on whatever was going to go on at the moment. That's true, but my brother was, was, was a blue-collar worker and, and, and really fit extremely well in managing the, the, the employees, the, the, the team members. He, 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 he knew how at every Monday morning, he sat down with every, with every team, team member in his office and went through with them and their problems and, and the issues that they had with their wives. If they didn't get a jacket and someone else got a jacket, and the little things, but those little things can be big things. And so he was, he was very, very good at, at, at dealing with the employees and, and managing the thing day to day. And my skill sets were the legal and financial aspects of the business. And so between the two of us, we, we made a good pair. I was up in the suites. I mean, I was the first probably spotter in NASCAR because my wife and I would be in a suite, France suite or, or Union Oil, or, and, and I'd have a headset on that could talk to the driver and the crew chief. And so that, that actually was something that was very good also. But my brother was in the pits with the guys and and that whole situation worked out well between us. Well, you've already told us how you met up with Bobby and Donnie in, in Hueytown. Uh, and Donnie was hired as your driver. What was your relationship with him? I mean, you know, there were apparently, as you sort of voice, apparently some ups and downs about what you thought of competition. Well, Mike, I, I went into the sport, and the more I got into it, I mean, I went in to try to win a championship. And, of course, to win a championship today, it was different back then. You, 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 couldn't, you couldn't fall out and then, and then come back. You really had to have a car that, A, that lasted the entire race, or you lose the points and you're nowhere. Totally different than today. And my, my, what, I, what I wanted to do was to – um, find a driver that I believed could win a, could win the championship. And um, I mean, Cale Yavaro came up to me when he was leaving junior and talked to me about driving. Uh, unfortunately, he only wanted to you know drive limited races and 
and that wasn't my take. And and I, you know, he was obviously a fabulous driver. And so with, with Donnie, the concerns that I had, you know, with him from a physical standpoint and stamina was, you know, God bless him. And, you know, he's a heck of a race driver. He's won a lot of races, but most of the races that, that he was really tops with were super speedway races. And you can't win a championship if you can't win at that time, North Wilkesboro and Martinsville and everything else. And if you have injury injuries from the past, they can take their effect in 500 laps at Martinsville. You know, and so that, that was the main reason that, that I felt that I needed to have a different driver if I were going to win a championship. Uh, you moved from Daytona to Charlotte, as you explained. How much of a benefit did that really prove to be for you? It was the whole deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was the whole deal because we, we, there were plenty of first-class mechanics in Charlotte. Yeah. And Robert knew them all. And so it, it enabled us to hire all kinds of people with you know whatever we wanted. So without that, it was definitely a, a problem being in Daytona. It was right. what I saw was not correct. And I corrected it. And, and, uh, and to this day, all the 99% of the race teams are, are in Charlotte. Mr. Gardner, one of the first lessons that you learn as a journalist, or at least you should learn as a journalist is that there are two sides to every story. And we did talk to Donnie for the podcast a few months ago. And he said that when he left the team, Diegard, that he received $500 for his stock in the company that he had received in exchange for a car or two and a truck and various pieces of equipment. That was his side of the story. What's your side of the story? Well, what, what, you know, whatever the transactions were at the time, it was a long time ago. <laughs> uh, I mean, we had a contractual agreement because obviously that was my life. I mean, he was under contract and, and whatever the contracts read, I honored them and terminated his, his services. If he was unhappy because he didn't get a million dollars or whatever, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the contract read the contract. And if he wasn't happy, then with, with the fairness of that, you know, he shouldn't have executed A, number one, number two, uh, or suit against me for, for, for doing something wrong that I did. I didn't do anything wrong. I, I honored my agreements and, and whatever he has to say. I mean, I'm not, at this point of life, I'm not interested in throwing stones at Donnie. He's a heck of a nice guy. He's got a beautiful family and everything else. But it just wasn't a fit for, for Dygard and, and, and him. And, and uh, you know, everybody has however they feel about how you break up a relationship. Right. I mean, I had that same problem with Darrell. Right. Daryl tried to walk out of his contract. He didn't realize that he couldn't walk out of the contract. <laughs> and I said to him, uh, I, I said, you know, Daryl, the reason we have these contracts, and by the way, we, we kept renegotiating all the time. And I'd give him various things that he wanted or whatever, and make him happy. And, then, and, that, and that stays on the records because it shows how many times he, he, he pulled all these deals. And then ultimately he wanted to go to junior. And, uh, and the, the big thing that happened with him was that, and later it got resolved between him and I was, you know, I told him, I said, look, you, you, you just can't walk away from a contract. You just, 
I mean, I, I was the first one to write a contract. And the reasons behind that were, you know, Stokely Van Camp, et cetera, and any other, you know, union, not union, oil company. He, he didn't understand it, that, <clears throat> that they had gone out and produced TV slots for next year, that, that, that Stokely did all this work that they expected to have their driver, Darrell Waltrip, in the car. And he couldn't just walk away. And so I held him to the contract and went through all the rigmaroles. And, and I never really said anything because I knew at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I would, I would prevail. And it's exactly what happened. And so I, I, you know, I said to him, um, we came up with a number. And really what I was doing was reimbursing Stokely Van Camp for all their expenses. I didn't make any money out of the deal. But in subsequent years have passed, and Daryl and I have become friends again. And and he he even said to me, Bill, you were right. I was wrong, which was nice between the two. Right. And uh, he said, I've learned about contracts, and I've learned about a lot of things. I said, well, you know, that's, you were a racer, racer, and, and, you know, I was a businessman. And I didn't want to hurt you in any way. I could have sat him down, which he finally found out with no income for years, but that wasn't what I was looking for. I just wanted to make sure there was a clean cut exit where our sponsor didn't get hurt. So that, that's what was behind that. Yeah. Well, you finally got your first win at Richmond in, in a September. Yes. Yeah. What'd that mean to you personally? Wow. Big, <laughs> huge. <laughs> I can't tell you how huge. I mean, it just, and, 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 and the problem was the biggest thing, I wasn't there and it was, it was a phone call to me. For some reason I had a business commitment somewhere. Oh, really? I didn't know that. No, I wasn't there to see it. And it was, it was uh, a, a great, great, my, you know, got the call and everything. I, I, it had to be a business, <clears throat> pretty serious business commitment that I was in for me to not go to the race. Cause <clears throat> my wife and I traveled to, to every race. Mr. Gardner from 1976 to 1977, there was a, huge turnaround in results on the racetrack. Daryl won six races and was fourth in the Winston Cup standings at the end of the year. How were you able to accomplish such a dramatic turnaround from one year people. to the next? It's, it, racing is about people. And, and all businesses are really. and But especially in, in, a, in a sport that's uh, you know like NASCAR is. And if you have the talent that and especially with the changes and and the the new the new innovations that we brought into the sport i mean gary nelson got for instance power steering to work they had tried it for years and nobody ever was able to get it to work but well, he did and we had it we had it for we had a deal with general motors that if we had things that we developed that we would have exclusivity on the, on, the, on, the, on the conversations relative to that for three races before the data got out to someone else. Um, and so, for instance, with the power steering, uh, we also were innovative with respect to shock absorbers, things that made the car race faster. Um, we also had, because I was from the steel industry, uh, you know, they used to put lead in the, in the, in the rails to meet the, the weight restrictions um, the sanctioning body. Well, 
I had introduced to my team a word called tungsten, and they had never heard of tungsten. And tungsten is a metal that is incredible, small in quantity and heavy in weight. And I had some shipped down to, to Gary, who, who couldn't believe it. And that actually helped us with the balancing of the car and where we put the weights and things like that. So it's all technological improvements that we would come up with. And uh, eventually people would, the word would get out and other people would have it. Today, everybody's got it in their shops. Hello, Scene Vault podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. Again, I just want to say thank you for listening to the Scene Vault podcast and Rick and Steve and the wonderful interviews they've been doing with the folks from NASCAR history, the drivers, the crew chiefs, the people that made it all happen over the years. At QWare, we are very proud to be a part of this podcast and being able to bring it to you, especially at a time when you have limited entertainment options. We hope that you're enjoying it, and we hope that you get a chance to check us out at QWareCMMS.com. QWare is one of the most powerful, simple-to-use, computerized maintenance management systems on the market for your facility's maintenance team. Whatever your business, check us out. QWareCMMS.com. We're here to help your team maintain excellence. From all of us at QWare, we hope that you and your family stay safe and healthy. Now let's get back to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Honest answer, Steve. What was the perception in the garage about die guard racing during its heyday? Well, the perception was winning team, but very unsteady because people seemed to come and go at die guard. Didn't seem to be any real foundation. Uh, number of crew chiefs, what, three or four in three or four years. <laughs> now, Daryl yeah. was there and winning races yeah. with die guard, which proved two things. No matter who was at Diegard working at the time, they built a quality car. And Daryl obviously was a quality driver. So the combination of Daryl and the prepared cars led to success. But the question was, <laughs> who's going to be preparing a car next week? It was, it was, that's the way it was. Since we started doing this podcast, we have heard from several different people about their impressions of Diegard. We talked to Donnie Allison about Die Guard, and he had some very definite opinions about what he thought of Die Guard and Bill Gardner in particular. There was, of course, Daryl Waltrip and Die Guard. There was Buddy Parrott and Die Guard. There was Don Whittington and Die Guard. There was Ricky Rudd and Die Guard. There was Bobby Allison and Die Guard. There was Robert and Die Guard. Daryl Derringer and Die. Yeah, Die Guard. We're not done yet. Now I say all that to say. What were you expecting going into this interview with Bill? I didn't know that Bill would be very open and frank with us, to be honest with you. I think that Bill knew, as we all did, that uh, the reputation of Diegard was, I don't want to say bad, but very, uh, uh, I don't know, suspicious, shall we say? I think a lot of people at the time were thinking that Bill Gardner must be a very, very difficult man to get along with. Uh, he was indeed a good businessman, and he was a bit mercurial. You didn't know what to expect from Bill while he was running that card. And so I think Bill might have been a bit concerned that we would prey upon that when talking to him. But it turned out to be just the opposite. He had no problem speaking his mind. 
Now, what was the impression you were left with after we talked to Bill? I gave him much more credit than I did when he was actually running a team, to be honest with you. He made me see some of the things that he did and the reason why he did those things. And when we listened to him and heard his side of it and why some things happened, it appeared to be much more logical than it did back in the Diegard heyday. Well, Steve, I didn't know what to expect because Diegard was already gone by the time that I got into the sport. So I never had any kind of encounter with Bill Gardner before we talked. But from everything that I had heard, from everything that Donnie Allison had said about him and from everything that Buddy Parrott had said about him and from everything that so many different people have said about him since then, certainly had said about Diegard in their business dealings with him, I kind of expected him to be very bombastic. I expected him to be very showy. To be honest with you, I <laughs> some of the questions that we were going to ask, I expected him to be just a little bit combative and yeah. maybe defensive. That's true. But that's not the way that he came across to me. In the interview, he never raised his voice. He was very matter-of-fact. He answered every single question that we threw at him. And so I don't know if he has mellowed over time, but he came across very, very good in this interview, I thought. Yeah, I think he has mellowed, but I think there's also this. As Bill looks back to the die guard days, I think that he admits to himself there might have been some kind of problem. But overall, Bill Gardner did a damn good job yeah. of running that team and making it successful. Then we can't ignore that. So I think that now uh, he recognizes it and he doesn't feel the need to, to dodge anything. Just be honest about what went on. And just let everybody know also how you felt about it. And I think he feels real good about it. Was he a very tough businessman? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I believe he was a very tough businessman. Were contracts a very serious thing to him? Absolutely. Would he have been tough to work for? The fact is there was a revolving door, as you mentioned, at Diegard. Right. So, yeah, the evidence would show that he was probably pretty tough to work for. I think he was probably a tough taskmaster, but he wanted things the way that he wanted them. And since he was the boss, that's the way it was going to be. I don't know that NASCAR had ever seen anything like a Bill Gardner who was straight out of the business world with no background whatsoever in racing. Well, I think that's 100% right. Bill Gardner was a different animal than NASCAR in those days. Rick, you know as well as I do that most of the successful teams were teams in the business of auto racing, okay? Petty Enterprises, Bud Moore, Junior Johnson, the list goes on. Bill was not. I believe he told us in the interview that most of his money came out of real estate. Mm -hmm. And he came into the business with the idea of not just running a team, but wanting a successful team. He even told us he wanted championships. And I think that drive to be among the best in NASCAR from an outsider is one reason why so many people came and went. Bill just had a goal he wanted to achieve, and he wanted everybody working toward that goal. And if you didn't work toward that goal or he didn't think you were working toward that goal, he was more than willing to replace you. And Steve, say what you will about the race team, but Gatorade was one of the first non-automotive sponsorships in NASCAR. I don't know that I would consider it the first because Bobby Allison had had Coca-Cola. There was Carling Beer in the sport at one time, 
And also, of course, Winston that sponsored the whole series. And City Corp and Anheuser-Busch on the cars. Another key element that I did not know about, and I would assume that it might have been a surprise to you, but the Gatorade sponsorship was evidently based solely on performance, where Digard got paid just for first, second, and third place finishes, plus laps led. So I would assume yeah. that's at least part of the reason why Bill was holding everybody's feet to the fire. Because You're exactly, you're exactly right. A contract based on that. I mean, you got to say, boys, we don't make any money unless we do extremely well. I think that's part of the reason why there was so much change at Digard. The other part of that story is this. According to Bill, he said that he was told by Bill Stokely, who was the head guy at Stokely Van Camp, the parent company of Gatorade. According to Bill, the first year of that deal, Gatorade sales increased by 300%. Yeah. That must have been true because Gatorade wasn't going anywhere out of Digard's reach for the next several years. And Steve, here's the line that stood out to me from this portion of our interview. He said that he was actually asked by Bill France Sr. and Bill France Jr. why he was in NASCAR rather than doing some kind of indie team because of his background. And Bill Gardner told Bill France that (laughs) he said that there was a lot more chicken and beer to be sold than champagne and caviar. (laughs) (laughs) And he was right. He was right. And Steve, Bill did talk about his split with DW quite a bit in this installment of our interview with him. But I really want to discuss that next week because we talked to Daryl Waltrip about his split with Digard and we talked to Bill Gardner about his split with Daryl Waltrip. So I kind of wanted to talk about that in one episode I think that time has healed some of those wounds because both Daryl and Bill seem to be very contemplative about it. I think, I think you're hundred percent right. And I think the reasoning uh, lies in the fact that time has passed and they both have taken a look back and they have seen, okay, there were problems, but look at the overall picture together. They were successful. And Rick, that's the bottom line. Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. Brian, this week, came up with a late 1970s Richard Petty t-shirt. He came up with a t-shirt from the early 2000s that featured all four generations of the Petty family. So that was obviously a cool t-shirt. You're kidding. No, I don't even remember one of those. That was an awesome t-shirt. And then he also posted because of our interview with Daryl Waltrip on the podcast, he posted a t-shirt of Daryl Waltrip in the number one Pennzoil car from Dell Earnhardt Incorporated. <laughs> and that's another one I don't remember. And finally, Steve, I will take exception to this one. He posted a Gravedigger t-shirt. Oh yeah. From the, the monster truck stuff, the monster right? Monster trucks. Now, yeah. A grave digger is okay, but I'm more of a maximum destruction guy myself. (laughs) (laughs) Give me Tom Mintz t-shirt any day. I have yet to meet a kid who likes monster truck racing and really, really likes grave digger. Not one. (laughs) 
So, Steve, again, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter. You can check out all of these T-shirts. Maybe he'll have a Maximum Destruction T-shirt by the time you go to his <laughs> website. You can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. That's SpeedwayTSJ.ETSY.com. When Grand National Scene first started, Rob Griggs's column was entitled Brits and Chitlins. Right? <laughs> now, we have already discussed the relative merits of grits. You're in favor. I'm not. Now, where do you stand on chitlins? Uh, I'm not. I wouldn't touch them. <laughs> you know what they are? <laughs> I wouldn't hit a dog in the hind end with a chitlin. <laughs> uh, no, thank you. <laughs> where did that column title come from? Well, uh, you know, I don't really know, but I'm going to say that very likely Rob was a Yankee. He was down in Alabama and he was producing a stock car racing newspaper. So maybe he named his column to be something more identified with the South and things from the South. I don't know. Grits and chitlins. Ooh, that's a combination. Uh, Grits and shrimp, maybe. I might could choke that down, but grits and chitlins, <laughs> uh, I'll pass. Thank you very much. <laughs> and Steve, this column read pretty much like a stream of consciousness kind of thing where it dealt with several different topics with no transition between them whatsoever. The commentary ran on the second page of the paper, and it consisted of six columns, pretty much all copy. And Rob's column ran across four of those columns, and Steve, it consisted of about 1,500 words. So the type, I couldn't even tell what type it was. It was probably maybe three or four point size. Well, I know exactly what Rob was doing here. Rob was emulating Chris Economaki. Okay. Because if you remember, Chris Economaki's yeah. columns in National Speed Sport News went all over the place and covered many, many topics, one right after the other, one right after the other. That's exactly what Rob was doing here. Well, I got to be honest. When I was going through this issue, this is one of the issues that I have scanned personally. I enlarged it to like, I don't know, 120, 130% so I could actually see it. <laughs> <laughs> but about three-fourths of the way through this column was a note about Diegard. The Diegard Gatorade AID, he, that was misspelled, but we won't go there. The Diegard Gatorade racing team is like musical chairs. Whoever is in charge of the team's putlic relations <laughs> must be going crazy. P-U-T-L-I-C. Okay, maybe Rob was typing a little bit too fast there. I don't he wasn't know. the best copy editor either. <laughs> so this is what it says. Whoever is in charge of the team's public relations must be going crazy. First, there were two Yankees with no sponsor who began the whole thing. All right. Okay. All right. He's right there. Go with this, huh? <laughs> but he's right. <laughs> now, remind me, Steve, where was Grand National Scene located when it first began? Notasola, Alabama. That's exactly what it was. It was Rob and his editor, Gary McCready. They began the publication from there. Now, at the time, they also had another publication. I think it was a weekly newspaper 
called the Coosa County Press, I believe. That might not be right, but it was Coosa County. And Gary would say they spend half the day working on scene, and then all of a sudden the police radio that they had in the office would sound off and talk about an accident on the highway or something like that. And Gary would grab his notebook and a pen <laughs> and jump in the car and take off to go cover the local news story. So that's what they were doing at the particular time scene started. You've told me something that I did not know. Where was Rob from originally? I think he's from Connecticut. I know Gary McCree was. And, he and came so down. he's going to call somebody else a Yankee. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Rob continued. Then Dottie Allison joined the team, and it made the big move to Daytona Beach. Mario Rossi was signed. But things didn't gel, and in the shakeup that followed, Donnie lost out, and Daryl Waltrip entered the picture. Rossi and Waltrip didn't work out very well together, and Rossi lost the war. The team began to get it together. David Ift was hired, races were won, and Daryl Derringer was added to the team. It was about this time that the team announced that it would move to Charlotte, North Carolina, following two super speedway wins. Ift quit the team reportedly over disputes with Daryl Derringer. <laughs> sort of getting the picture now. <laughs> we hope you follow all this better than we do. Perhaps the team should print its press kits by the dozen. If, by the way, is now working with the Sam Summers team. Right? Well, you know, it sounds like Rob is rambling, but not. He's spot on on the transitions that took place at Tigard at that time. Also, in this issue, Nashville was one of the races that was featured in this issue, and the first part of Rob's column was devoted to an incident that took place in the Music City 420. Now, I did not know this one. Music City 420 in Nashville, where you have never been, but we won't go there, okay? (laughs) (laughs) The first caution flag of the night took place because there was no ambulance at the racetrack. That is hard to imagine. That was one thing, but the timing couldn't have been worse because it came during a cycle of green flag stops and because basically everyone except Benny Parsons and Kel Yarborough had pitted, they were caught a lap down. So Benny and Kel had, I believe, a couple of laps on the field at that time. That was what made the race something unique for a very unique and basically unforgivable reason. There had been an ambulance at the track, but one of Dave Marcus's crew members, Frank Kiakowski, was hit in the face by a flying gas can during a pit stop, and he had to be taken to the hospital for stitches. Now, that's one thing. This guy was hit in the face by a gas can. Right. I bet that left a mark. (laughs) Oh, I would say so. And if I'm not mistaken, this is another situation where a speedway didn't have the necessities it needed. I've never been to Nashville, but if an ambulance had to take a crewman out of the track, all right, that might mean that there was no medical center at the track. And, uh, of course, we can't even fathom a race without a medical center today. But that's pretty much what it was like back then. Once somebody noticed (laughs) that there was not an ambulance on site, the caution came out on lap 152, and Steve, it took 18 laps (laughs) for another 
ambulance to show up. And then the second one did eventually show up not long afterwards. So things got kind of tense. And I think that the crowd knew what was going on. So when the ambulance did show up, there were evidently some cheers or jeers or whatever you want to call it. But NASCAR Vice President Lynn Kukler said afterward, we don't have a rule about it, but we strongly recommend that a track have at least two ambulances. There's well, not so, a rule that there yeah. has to be an ambulance at the racetrack. Right. You know, something good came out of it then because from that point on, if two ambulances were required at a track, well, naturally, that was a very, very good thing. And you can't fault NASCAR for throwing the caution during this time. You can't continue a race without an ambulance at the track. It's just common sense. Steve, safety has come so far. Steve, I actually got sick at the racetrack in Homestead at the end of the 2003 season. And I actually had to be taken to the hospital by ambulance there in Homestead. (laughs) And the ambulance didn't know how to get to the hospital. I honestly and truly. You're kidding. (laughs) No, I honestly and truly thought that we were going to have to stop at the 7-Eleven (laughs) <laughs> and ask directions. And I was going to be like, you know what? While you're in there, why don't you get me a big gulp? <laughs> but the ambulance driver did not know how to get to the hospital. So that's another case. I'm sure it's been resolved by now. I'm sure they're all given directions. They all have GPS. They all have their phones. So everything's good now. I would hope so. Rick. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, here's another thing about the Nashville race. Rob also mentioned the fact that Benny Parsons won just a little more than $7,000 for his win at Nashville, while Bristol had paid more than $20,000 for its 500-mile race. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, so there's another typo. We need to start a running tally of these. So, <laughs> But there were also notes in Rob's column about Muhammad Ali's recent title bout against Alfredo Evangelista. And the connection was that Evangelista had had some advertising on his trunks, just like NASCAR. (laughs) Now, Steve, in your wildest imagination, did you ever think that you would hear the name Alfredo Evangelista (laughs) on the Scene Vault podcast? No, I would not. Be honest with you, Rick. Uh, But that's an interesting uh, observation Rob made about advertising on the trunks and advertising on the cars. You never saw much advertising on anybody's uniform in any other sport. Now you saw in boxing. Muhammad Ali is a little bit of a stretch on the same vault podcast, but of Alfredo Evangelista, oh yeah, <laughs> that's big time. <laughs> Steve, there was also a note in Rob's column about Pete Hamilton, who was building race cars down in Norcross, Georgia. There was a NASCAR documentary called Stock Car that was coming out. I saw that. I saw that. I wonder if it's Actually, on YouTube. I would look for it because it's very good. If I'm not mistaken, Dick Brooks narrated it. Also, there was a note about the birth of Fred Lorenzen's daughter, Amanda, who I just so happened to be Facebook friends with. So that's kind of cool. There was also a lack of security at the pit gate entrance at Nashville. Boy, Rob was not happy with Nashville. <laughs> oh, no, he was, he was giving them the lowdown, that's for sure. <laughs> there was an across-the-board $10 a seat hike in ticket prices at Charlotte. He talked about the future of the Nord Crosskopf, Harry Hyde, Neil Bonnet team. And finally, Richard Petty had evidently had some things to say about Joe Frason. 
following the Talladega race. Richard Petty reportedly said that NASCAR <laughs> should put Joe in a straitjacket and asked why Frayson was even allowed to run Grand National races. Wow. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Richard was not the only one to say such things about old Joe, that's for sure. Now, tell me who he was. I don't know a lot about Joe Frayson. He, he, well, you know, I don't know as much about him as I know about several of the others, uh, but he was a character. He looked like a stock car driver from the old South. Had longish hair, uh, kind of a crooked smile at the end. Uh, and he was also a very witty guy, but he had some of the craziest incidents on the track that I had ever seen. I know one that I remember very well. Uh, there was an incident at a Darlington race where Skip Manning, who was an up-and-coming driver for Billy Hagen at the time, uh, spun in the first and second turn. NASCAR threw the caution, and everybody slowed down. And some of them were starting to make pit stops. Now, here comes Joe Frasson out of the fourth turn, down the straight and into the first turn, and absolutely T-bones Skip Manning, who'd been sitting there for almost a lap and a half of racing, and no one could understand what Joe was thinking of at all. This is the kind of thing that gave Joe the reputation of what he was, and this is the kind of thing that led drivers to suggest that Joe had no business on the track. Wow, Okay. Now, Steve, here's a cool one. Rob also wrote in this column, the Napa Auto Parts Company has jumped into Winston Cup Racing with both feet as they will sponsor the National 500 at Charlotte Motor Speedway in the fall and the Riverside Race coming up on June 12th. Now, Napa's still in the sport. Right. Guess what? Napa's still with us. And And I think old Chase Elliott is doing them pretty well right now. And Napa was doggone close to going to victory lane at Bristol yesterday, but uh, okay, well, we better <laughs> we better stop right there. <laughs> yes, but Chase has already been a winner this year for Napa, and they have to be liking that. As for race coverage, the headline over the race lead for the May 1st race at Talladega read, <laughs> I want to know how long it's been since this word was used in a headline. <laughs> Foxy move gives Walter Winston 500 win. Foxy move. Foxy. <laughs> That's straight out of the 1970s, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So the Foxy move in question was this. Daryl had led the last 11 laps, but on the last one, he was in front of Donnie Allison and Kel Yarbrough and Benny Parsons as they crossed under the white flag. Everybody in the place knew what was going to happen including Donnie and Kel and Benny and whoever else, Daryl was being set up for the slingshot move. But then in turn two, he dove low very suddenly and was going to the apron almost on the backstretch. He was basically trying to break the draft. And Steve, that kind of thing did not happen back then at all. There was a reason that Daryl did what he did, and we'll find that out as we go into more of this story. So Steve, when Daryl went down to the apron, that pretty much set off a scramble behind him. And Daryl did get away from the pack just a little bit. And back then that was a good thing today. You don't want to get that far away from no. the pack, but going down into turn three, Kel kind of got back to Daryl and they evidently made a little bit of contact, but Daryl was able to hang on to the lead and win the race. But again, 
Daryl didn't do anything that last lap that drivers don't do basically every lap these days at Daytona and Talladega. But back then, it was very, very, very much out of the norm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, most of the time, had Daryl not made that move, he would have been a sitting duck going down this back stretch. Oh, yeah. He, if he knew, had to he done that, that. He doesn't win that race. I don't right. have any doubts about that whatsoever. But Daryl said in this issue, it was planned. I knew they were going to draft by me in turn three and four. So when I dove low, I think the other three were scared to dive low too. The move gave me room to breathe and it panicked the rest of them. The move did it for me. I probably looked erratic, but it was easy to do and it definitely wasn't. Well, Kale said after the race that the best car in that group did not win the race to date by any means. It was Daryl's move. And that was sort of a slap at, uh, at Daryl. And Daryl responded very, very nicely. He said, well, I guess if I didn't have the best car, this race was run by superior driving. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact of the matter is, he got He's to right. take home the trophy. He got to take home the trophy, and that's what matters. Now, Steve, this was something that kind of surprised me. This was Chevrolet's very first win at Talladega. So I didn't know that. Yeah. And not only was it Chevy's first win at Talladega, each of the top four finishers were in Chevrolet's. Well, it must say something about the horsepower and the handling ability of the Chevrolets on the super speedway at that time. One other note from this race, Bobby Allison lasted only 11 laps before the engine in his car expired. But before that, as short a time as he was on the racetrack, somebody from the stands threw a bottle onto the racetrack and it hit Bobby's windshield and shattered hmm. his windshield. Now, listen. Very stupid and very dangerous. That is top of the list of things that you do not do during a race. Absolutely. And the results could have been a lot more tragic than they were. Kel Yarbrough won the May 15th Mason-Dixon 500 by six seconds over David Pearson. Despite having some pretty substantial issues of his own, he was black flagged once when his rear bumper was knocked loose in traffic. Was Gary Nelson his crew chief at that time? Oh, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I should edit that part out. I don't know, <laughs> but I probably won't. <laughs> and then he was black flagged again when a rear shock absorber came loose. And finally, he ran out of gas later in the race and had to coast into the pits to make his stop. After all that, he won the race. Are and you kidding after, me? Yeah. After all that, he won the race. And then also there was the Nashville race that Benny Parsons won. And we've already talked about the ambulance issues that went on there. This issue was packed with race coverage. Yes, it was packed with race coverage. And now a few nice tidbits about what was going on for sure. Finally, there was a feature on Herb Nab, who was the crew chief at the time for Kel Yarbrough at Junior Johnson Associates. And Steve, Herb Nab is a name that we have heard so much about, but personally, I don't know a whole lot about him other than the fact that he was a longtime crew chief in the sport. He did work for Kel Yarbrough. He did work, I believe, at Harry Rainier Racing. So what do you remember about Herb? Well, first of all, he was a mechanical genius, and he was very quiet and a little crusty and pretty much kept to himself. 
the fact that he kept to himself and just did his job is probably one thing that made him a superior crew chief. And he worked for the best teams and some of the best drivers. So I don't think there's any doubt that his skills were exceptional. But as far as being a public figure with any kind of flamboyancy at all, that was not Herb Knapp. He was quiet and he kept to himself. Oh, he could tell some great stories and he had some great quotes too. But the fact is he just wasn't a kind of out there type of crew chief. Well, here's one of those great quotes. And I think it's a quote that kind of lets me know that Herb and I would probably have gotten along pretty well. He said in this feature, winning races is like eating good food. Once you get a taste of it, you'll work your tail off to keep it. <laughs> well, he's good right. Food, I'm yeah. in. <laughs> there you are. As long as it's not grits and chitlins. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, race fans. I'm Dave Marcus, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Finally, I continue to be absolutely amazed by some of the feedback that we get. And we got another note this weekend from one of our newest Patreon supporters, Ron Montgomery. And Steve, this is what he had to say. My knowledge of Grand National Scene began in about 1977 when I was a student at Auburn University. Okay, we'll let that part slide that he was a student (laughs) at Auburn, but hey, that's besides the point. (laughs) Roll Tide. One day, I was driving around the nearby small town of Notasoga, Alabama, and I saw a nondescript block building with a small sign that said Grand National Scene. I had been an avid NASCAR fan and an Alabama gang fan all my life. In those days, we were starved for information. The Birmingham News did a pretty good job, and the local TV stations gave occasional mentions. Upon coming to Auburn, I was delighted to find that I could read the Charlotte Observer in the library, although it would be a week old. Needless to say, I stopped at the building and walked in and said, Hey, what do you guys do here? The lady said we produce a newspaper about stock car racing. I thought I died and gone to heaven. I subscribed immediately, and the staff was very nice to give me back issues to take with me, and I remained a subscriber almost to the end. I guess that's why I'm passionate about what you're trying to do and preserving these issues online. I know how valuable this information is, and it must be preserved. I would like to do whatever I can to support the work. I have a pretty large collection of NASCAR stuff that I hope to do something creative with in that regard. Thank you for the work you do. It's my favorite podcast, Ron Montgomery. How about that? Thank you, Ron. That's great. Now, Steve, I have to ask, did you ever visit the offices in Alabama? No, never did. The first offices of Grand National Scene that I entered was a converted country store on Roberta Church Road in Concord, North Carolina. So Ron has done something in racing that you haven't. He was able to go to the Alabama office. That's right. I was never there. I asked him if he had any pictures of that because that would have been awesome to share. I would have loved to have seen that. (laughs) I'm like you. (laughs) It's Uh, quite frankly. (laughs) 
we got to get some WD-40 for those doors. <laughs> you never notice it unless we're doing something like this. That's true. There goes Otis. <laughs>